Hi, uh, my name is Lou Dang Zhao, and I'm an immigration lawyer in Toronto, Canada. Today we have a very special guest. Go ahead and introduce yourself, Fiona. Hi, I'm Fiona Zeiger. I am a researcher at Erasmus University in Rotterdam, that's in the Netherlands. And yeah, I've known Janssen for a number of years now. We go back to even before our time together at the National University of Singapore. We that's met right. before. Yeah. We met and it was under very serious circumstances. We were introduced by a, a very good friend of ours, uh, Jojo Abinales, who teaches at the University of Hawaii in uh, Honolulu. And we met in the Philippines in Quezon City where uh, Fiona was staying before she started her doctorate in Singapore. Isn't that right? Yes, yes, there was a coffee shop and it was all very formal. <laughs> it was all very formal in a Los Angeles headquartered coffee shop for sure. <laughs> kind of miss that coffee shop. We don't have that in Canada. Do you have that in Europe? I'm not in that specific one. Which one was it again? Was it the, the coffee one bean and the... tea leaf? Uh, that one. Okay. I wasn't really sure which one it was. No, we don't. Uh, we don't. No. Makes sense. No. It's Europe. You have all sorts of, you know, great cafes, especially that's in Vienna, true. where you're currently are. Yes, that's true. We do have a Starbucks and we might have maybe another coffee shop brand here I don't I'm not really <laughs> sure but they're obviously not very you know present I would say yeah Starbucks thought back then many years ago thought they would conquer the market and they ended up closing down a lot of <laughs> outlets they actually open up so sorry I'm laughing I'm not I don't <laughs> that's okay I mean Vienna can boast all their amazing cafes what was the one that you took me to when I visited you in Vienna Café Central yes. can you tell us a bit about Café Central Café Central is in the first district. It's not too far from the Hofburg, which is like the seat of the, the government. Most government offices are in the first district. And it's actually quite a nice cafe to go to because they have a wonderful ceiling. So it's an old, it's in an old building. And yeah, on weekends, they also have piano music if you enjoy <laughs> that. And well, a lot of Viennese cakes and, and coffee, of course. I think back then when we went, there was still, it was still easy to get in. You just walked in and had coffee. But That's by right. now it has become so popular that at least before Corona, the pandemic, when, when, you know, it was like tourism season, there would be queues in front of the cafes. That's right. Yeah. I heard yeah. about that. Um, I got lucky being able to visit such a storied place because if I understand that's where a lot of intellectuals back in the day would hang out, right? At cafes in general. So this one, yes. But then there's also other cafes in, in Vienna that are known for, you know, intellectuals hanging out and discussing. Havelka is another one that's very different mm. from Café Central. Café Central is like very beautiful and, and, and high ceilings and, and decorations and very golden. <laughs> and Café right. Havelka is really like more uh, one darker. Day, <laughs> right. One day when, you know, travel is a thing again, I encourage you to visit Vienna for all the wonderful cafes and just the history of this beautiful city. But I promise you guys, we're talking about coffee here for a reason, because there is this other coffee brand called UCC, which is oddly enough, a Japanese chain from Japan, from Tokyo. Um, UCC markets itself as Viennese coffee. And I think it's an interesting pivot to my next question. Fiona, what's your previous research project? I understand that you spent some time in Japan too, right? Yes, yes, I, I have. Before I 
returned to Europe. <laughs> I, I spent how many years in the Asian region? So half a year I've worked in the Philippines. I was five and a half years in Singapore and then a total of three years on and off in Japan. And that's because I studied Japanese Filipino children, so the migration of children born to Filipino women and Japanese men from the Philippines to Japan. And of course, also uh, citizenship claims on the part of Japanese Filipino children towards Japanese nationality or citizenship. In Japan, it, it, it overlaps. Yeah, NGO activism on their behalf as well. So that, that was my main study uh, research topic. I mean, in case you're wondering, because this podcast is normally about Canadian migration stories, the reason why I figured that Fiona would be a nice interviewee for, for today as podcast is because Fiona, you know, basically peddles in the market of lived realities of migrants. She's very much well-versed in qualitative research and case studies. She's been doing this for several years, and I think, you know, her, her work on uh, migration stories and immigration and migration infrastructures is actually pretty in, important. And I think this is a pretty recent pivot since your return to return to Europe, uh, return. Fiona. <laughs> Can you talk to us about migration infrastructures and identities, you know, as, you know, you basically pivoted back from Asia to Europe? Mm-hmm. So do you want me to speak more about my previous research on Japanese Filipino children and then kind of speak about both like the identity questions, sure. but also migration infrastructure and then, yeah. Yeah, you, you can just like, you know, use that as a way to sort of like smooth it over and, you know, the transition stories itself is also very fascinating. And to us for immigration practitioners here in Canada, at least I can say that, you know, um, when we do our intake, when we deal with our clients, it's also very important to us to understand, to know our clients better. And I think the sociological lens offers a lot to our colleagues at the bar. Okay, so I think I will keep the identity part a little bit shorter because I think what's important is what followed from or yeah what fo what followed from from the like the meaning making and the identity constructions of Japanese Filipino children also with the help of activist NGOs that made claims on their behalf. So I looked into how children born mostly so in the Philippines to Filipino women and Japanese men who had very little contact with Japanese culture at large, if you like, their Japanese fathers, their Japanese families, so the blood relatives in Japan, who had very little or no lived experience in Japan, how these children then still, and, and also often their mothers and, and people supporting them, sort of created this identity of being half Japanese. And yeah, how, how being half Japanese became something that meant something or became very important, right? So, and I found that uh, this had to be understood also within the context of the migration histories between the two countries and also what it meant to be Japanese in the context of the Philippines, because it could also having a Japanese parent or a claim to Japan, a claim to Japanese ethnicity could also be a form of privilege in a way. Yes, because well, in as in many countries, you have, you know, racialized or ethnic hierarchies, and there are certain 
privileges that come with skin color or name or a claim to a certain heritage or descent. So that's not only in North America, it's actually all around the world. <laughs> and then in the context of the Philippines, with its post-colonial history, you also have certain hierarchies lingering on. So the Philippines has not only been a Spanish colony and an American colony, it has also been a Japanese colony for a short period in time. And there is also a certain notion of, well, there is a term used in the Philippines uh, commonly called mestizo. It translates to mixedness, for instance. You correct me if I'm wrong, but that's how I usually translate mestizo-ness or mestizo. And it usually refers to people who have like a European heritage of some sort. Right. right? I mean, you see that uh, anchor across Southeast Asia too, right? In the Malay speaking yes. regions of Baranakans, mm -hmm. also in, in the Americas. I mean, in, in Canada, the closest interface that I found was uh, the Metis, which mm -hmm. I think it derives it from the French term metissage, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm mm -hmm. not mistaken, which is very, very much close to the Spanish term mestizo. Uh, mm -hmm. as you just mentioned. So it's very, very on point when you mentioned that racial hierarchies, ethnic groupings, and privilege essentially exist not just in specific corners of the world, but practically everywhere. Yes, yes. And sometimes we're not aware of that because we're so concentrating on actually being quite ethnocentric in criti well, uh, criticizing, you know, certain uh, ethnic and racial hierarchies in particular places, and rightly so. Yet it is always interesting to also look, you know, across the globe and take on a more comparative perspective as well. There's so, actually, a, yeah, so there, if you're interested or if the viewers are interested in looking into more anthropological, sociological work, there's a special issue coming out in, maybe it has come out already, but it's, you know, soon in the journal Ethnic and Racial Studies on inter-Asian racisms. And the editors, yeah, yeah, the editors are Sylvia Ang, Brenda Yeo, I think Elaine Ho. I hope I didn't forget someone. <laughs> but these three are. Oh, it's it's editors. Brenda's a part of it. Yes. Okay, yes. for for just for for our viewers in Canada, <laughs> Brenda Yeo. Uh, those who are not familiar, Brenda Yeo used to be at least when I was at NUS, used to be the head of the geography department, and she's pretty much a mainstay in migration studies uh, across the world, really. Yes. So if you're interested, read that. And mm -hmm. to get back to, you know, what I started <laughs> just before, um, I just wanted to finish it off by saying that if you have if you have a claim to Japanese heritage in the Philippines as well, this can also en entail certain privileges, whether it's people treating you a little bit different or people assuming you come from a wealthy background or having like, you know, access to uh, a wider world via citizenship, because people would then maybe think that you have, you know, both Filipino and, and Japanese passports. Right. So there is also this, this idea of, you know, privilege through mobility, because not mm -hmm. everyone is mobile. So you can mm -hmm. cross borders, you can look for education and jobs abroad where, you know, with a Philippine passport, you would have a harder time because you need a visa for almost everywhere, except ASEAN, but still <laughs> anywhere else, you would, uh, you would have to queue at embassies and, and, and make a good case for yourself in order to be let into other places, but with a Japanese passport that is much easier. And in Japan, mm -hmm. you of course, as a as as a national and citizen, you would have the right to work.
anyhow. It's it's a form of a migration social infrastructure in a sense, because if it enables certain yeah. mobilities and, uh, you know, if it enables you access to certain things in society, th- that's really interesting. Thanks for sharing, Fiona. Now, can we flip the coin a little bit? How do these Filipino-Japanese children, you know, face reality when they end up in Japan? Just very briefly, just give us a taste. Yeah, so it's oftentimes it's not as expected. So there are much more positive expectations, probably. It also depends a bit on their age, right? So mm. some come as children, some in their youth, some get uh, their passports or their recognition in the, around age 19, 20. They have to get it ready by 2021 mm. because that's the age when you, by which you have decided what nationality you take on. Right. And yeah, it, a lot of people say life is hard in Japan. They have to work a lot. It is hard to afford certain things. And it's more fun in the Philippines, which is also the tourism tagline. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for sharing that. Uh, actually, the, you know, two things really struck me. First is age and second adaptation issues and how they intersect. It's common. It's a common theme in migration studies in Canada. I think pretty much cuts across any place where there's a lot of in-migration, uh, I would say. And it's fascinating how that like works with the identitarian politics that's based on the racial hierarchies, the ethnic hierarchies that are created, the, the attendant issues that, you know, are brought about by identity, as you mentioned. But I'd like to pivot a little bit, uh, Fiona, to how we sort of like loop it back into Canada or North America. I I just wanted to make this like, you know, comparative uh, approach, essentially. And the the whole reason why we're very lucky to have Fiona is we get to have a comparative lens today because so far in this podcast, we've talked about, you know, Canada for the most part, Uh, a little bit of Hong Kong at some point, but I I also want to bring in some European perspectives. At some point, Fiona, we were talking about, you know, the various refugee crises, the waves of refugee crises in, in Europe. You talked about specifically Cyprus, for example, and how that intersects with international education. And I think often hand, I've mentioned to you that international education has become one of the main access points to gain immigration status in Canada. So can you tell us about how education is now being marketed in uh, Europe? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so international education as a way into a country is nothing new, right? And no. Very often you you go to university and then you get your education there and eventually you you might also have visas that are especially for graduates so they can look for jobs and it's kind of you know a sort of talent training oriented. Now in what I've found out found out <laughs> about uh, Cyprus, so I've been conducting field work, remote field work, I have to say, over the past year in, in, in collaboration with a local partner we have there with uh, asylum seekers in Cyprus. And what I've learned, which I found very surprising to anyone working in Cyprus, this is not news, just to say, this is just for me very surprising, is that a lot of people seem to come through colleges that are either located in in the Republic itself, in the south of Cyprus or in the north of Cyprus. So for people who do not know, Cyprus is an island with Turkish part north or Turkish occupied part north, depending on which side you're on in this uh, political conundrum and a Greek southern part or majority Greek southern part, which is the Republic of Cyprus, which is part of the European Union. And between the two, there is no border. There is a buffer zone. 
which is also referred to as the green line. So it's not actually a border, yet it is kind of a border. It's not an official border, yet it delimits two areas and you're not supposed to cross from the north to the south without you know, go, going through checks, just you know, as you would go through checks when you enter the Republic of Cyprus at the airport, let's say, checking whether you have the right to enter. So what happens is you have a lot of colleges. I said in the south there are some as well, but I've mostly heard about those in the north who recruit a lot of international students and also advertise their, their universities all around the world, especially in Africa. They are very strong there. And apparently there are also a number of agents advertising or sort of being in touch or recruiting potential university or college students in, in Pakistan and, and, and India. But what often happens is that people then come in on their student visa, but after a semester or so move from the north to the south whenever the student visa runs out or they run out of money, that's also possible. I'm not saying that none of the students who actually intended to go for studies in at these colleges, I'm not saying that none of them actually did intend to study there, but often expectations and realities do not match. And then when people run out of money but want to sort of not go home but remain on the island, the only possibility they see is to cross the green line go to the Republic of Cyprus and apply for asylum. That's very interesting how education agents essentially have found a niche market here. But I remember from our conversations off camera, you had mentioned something along the lines of marketing Northern Cyprus as the European Union. Yeah, so I've, I, I've got, after these conversations, I got quite curious about, you know, agents so I just looked tried to look for them and you know they mostly advertise their services on Facebook sometimes their addresses most of the time they're just phone numbers or email addresses and then the, in, in some cases it is not entirely clear or it is not made clear that there are two parts to Cyprus and that the university is not on the European part of Cyprus and then it's written study in Cyprus, study in Europe or European university, but there is no mentioning that the site where the university is on, the northern part, is not actually part of the European Union, which is different. So there is a bit of, I would say, like information not being communicated quite clearly. <laughs> I would, I would, I would think purposely so. <laughs> right. Yeah, to to give the impression that people who go to these universities would then be studying within the European Union and have all the rights that are tied to a status in the European Union. Given the, you know, we, we know that certain countries have been going through like various waves of crises, but the more recent one, which is the uh, current pandemic we're living in, really has punctuated and made certain problems around the world acute. Have you seen a rise in, uh, you know, a proliferation of, I suppose, let's call them advertising strategies on the part of, let's say, not so well-willed or well-intentioned um, agents, essentially, to lure people into Northern Cyprus and marketing it as, you know, Europe, instead of not being clear about it, not being a part of the European Union? So, no, because I looked up these agents just to confirm what I had been told during interviews and to sort of look into it myself. I just got curious. So I just looked around and uh, to get a bit of an, an impression of what's happening on Facebook, but also on YouTube. You have a lot of YouTubers discussing studying in Cyprus. Most of the time, what I see is just people, you know, giving 
tips on you know what kind of jobs you could get if you're there but also also showing like the good life fascinating i mean that's an interesting pivot to my next discussion point with you and we've (laughs) talked about this before and i think every time we talk about it you get really excited so i'm excited now to talk about it with (laughs) you digital and immigration infrastructure and its shift to the digital world you talked about Facebook's modes of conveyance of information. So, so too with uh, YouTube. What are your thoughts on you know these forms of immigration or migration infrastructure that enable, uh, I suppose, the sharing of information and how to do this, how to do that when it comes to immigrating anywhere really, whether it be North America or Europe or around Asia. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people draw their information from their mobile phones, right? And these are navigating tools. There are tools to know more about the place where you're headed. There are tools about knowing about your modes of transportation, which may be other people. I've heard, I've also heard from, through some interviews with people who work with a lot of asylum seekers, that WhatsApp groups, for instance, are very, WhatsApp or Viber groups are very widely used among by by agents or brokers or you could call them traffickers or smugglers depending what exactly they offer and a prospective migrants in in forums uh, like these closed groups fiber and whatsapp groups where information Mm. is exchanged promises are made deals are made and if someone comes back to say hey you tricked me they're just being thrown out of the whatsapp group or out of the viber group so that happens. So it's not um, as open as, say, for example, if you're on Facebook, it's it's more publicly accessible, unless it's a closed group too, right? Yes, I'm, I'm sure that there are lots of closed groups on Facebook as well. I would think that if someone has an interest in, you know, attracting customers, I'll say, because it's a business, attracting customers, um, you would have like a visible page, but then you would take the details probably elsewhere, I suppose, like via phone or via emails, you first say, hey, mm. DM me for the details. Yeah, yeah, that's very often that's that's the case. So there is just a very superficial sort of information displayed on on, on public pages and then everything else has to be done, you know. So would you call that the hook and then they have to like fall for it and essentially get roped into a more intimate conversation about the details? Well, Yes, but uh, that's also typical sales, isn't it? I right. mean, <laughs> that's just... <laughs> I mean, you, you said it at the beginning, it's a business. And I think it's yeah. very important to highlight that because a lot of people think that, you know, those who fall for it, like think that, you know, th- these are normally like networks where people help each other, you know, encourage this chain migration. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's a business, isn't it? It, it is a business for the agents, yes. And that's also what some of the people who made use of these services told me. It's a business and they're concerned with you until you're somewhere there. And if you're in trouble, once you're at your destinations, it's no longer their problem because they right. fulfilled their part. So that's, it's not a charitable organization trying <laughs> to... No, it's a business. And some people do some people do get what they paid for and what they wanted. And other people do actually get... Get in trouble, I guess. Get in trouble and get, uh, how do you say, arnaque in English? Scammed. Uh, Scammed. Sorry. Thank the, you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. So, so Fiona is one of those gifted ones. She speaks English, French, German. I was going to say Austrian, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> and Japanese. And she speaks a little bit of Tagalog too, actually. Uh, continue along. 
<laughs> but but yeah, no, Aronake is the, the specific term that you're looking for. And in English, it's scammed. And you're right. Um, yeah. A lot of people really fall for these sales pitches. You're right. And yeah. some people, for some people, it actually works. And for some, it doesn't. And it's a very familiar story for us here in Canada who are in the world of immigration, really, because there's more and more, you know, groups, self-help groups, especially, or let's say non-experts pretending to have some expertise and providing advice on Facebook, for example, or on YouTube about their own personal experiences on how they did it. But at the end of the day, no immigration story is the same, even if the laws and no matter how similar the facts are, unfortunately. And, you know, there's so many variables that you can't control. And I suppose this has always been a point of pain for a lot of people who essentially don't get away with it uh, when they for example, in my practice, when I do some consultations, some people would say, oh, that's because that's what my friend did. And I thought it would work for me. And I'm like, no, not necessarily, because at the time when your friend came to Canada, the rules were very much different at the time when you came to Canada. So mm -hmm. it might not necessarily be the same for you. It's it's a tricky world. The, the world of migration writ large and not just Canadian immigration. And I think you'll agree with me on this, uh, Fiona, is that the world of migration is constantly shifting. It's almost like quicksand. It's it's very tricky and perilous if you don't know what you're doing, unfortunately. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I also heard from people in, in Cyprus that it that the rules and regulations seem to change uh, mm. quite frequently, and it's hard to keep up and to keep for first-line practitioners, for instance, to inform, firstly, people who are part of their group who work with migrants, but also their beneficiaries or members themselves, like the migrants they work with, to inform them about the changes. That's just what I was told. I cannot mm. point out specific changes in, in, in the regulations, but they usually pertain to what kind of work asylum seekers are allowed to take up to, what kind of categories are open to them, which ones are closed, kind of right. the, the time people have to make appeals and mm. whether there are differences made depending on whether they're from a safe country of origin or a country of origin deemed not safe. We would and need to get a Cypriot uh, immigration lawyer, a refugee lawyer yeah. to actually speak to that for sure. And I do I do get it. Like the European Union's southern border has always been a live issue and things are constantly shifting when it comes to policies. It depends on mm -hmm. how the, the bloc uh, comes to an arrangement and how it would deal with its uh, immigrants, uh, its refugees, its asylum mm -hmm. seekers. It's a very, very contentious area, I would say, of international law. And it's interesting to draw parallels as to what the North American experience Experiences, whether it be in the U.S. southern southern border, or even with America's border with with Canada, really the, the Canadian southern border, there there's also points of contention when it comes to refugees. So all of this is a fascinating world, and I think we can all benefit from a very comparative lens. Which brings me to my final point for today's uh, podcast, actually. I would like to th take the opportunity to thank Fiona for, for coming to our show and to promote the Migration Podcast. So Fiona, maybe you can tell, tell us a little bit about the Migration Podcast. So the Migration Podcast has existed since last year. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we feature migration researchers who speak about their research in a much more concise way than I have done today. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah, it's, it's an audio podcast. We're not on YouTube. You can find us on SoundCloud. We also synced up with a number of other uh, podcast apps. So just look for us. And we also have a, a page, web page dedicated to the podcast on the Imisco website. Mm. 
what is IMISCO, you ask? Well, IMISCO is <laughs> the largest academic network of migration scholars, academic scholars, <laughs> of migration scholars in Europe. So it's written I-M-I-S-C-O-E. Right. And the website is imisco.org. And so we are also there. Yeah, our goal was to, yeah, have people speak about their research and give sort of an easy but broad overview of, of migration research, what, what people look at, what they have found, etc. And we have a number of guests who have actually spoken about the relationship between migration and digital mobility, meaning the uh, digital media, social media, the smartphone, if you like. There is a very interesting link there. And yeah, just listen to the episodes. For sure. I mean, even from immigration law, I can tell you that it's, you know, an element of an element that has basically accelerated things for better or for worse. The diffusion of information has always been, you know, turning points in the history of humanity. We can think of the, the Gutenberg Press, for example, when things started to get standardized, when books started to become a thing, when newspapers became serialized. Information dissemination has always become critical junctures for humanity's history. And I think we're living through one of those interesting transitions and immigration cannot escape this uh, reality of humanity, I think. And on that note, well, Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today. And I really hope that our listeners will get a chance to, you know, head over to the Migration Podcast and to check out the wonderful, wonderful research that Imisco is doing. Links are going to be included on the description of this video. And if you're listening to us on audio format, it will be included in the description as well. And this is Imlight. Thank you so much. Bye.